This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this episode of podcast, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Adelia James. She is the Assistant Professor of Sociology at Endicott College. She's going to be discussing her research related to racial discrimination in the veterinary profession. Now, of course, this isn't a new topic. This is one that I've spent a lot of time talking about, and one that we talk about certainly on this podcast, and certainly it's so bread and butter and core to the work that I do here at AAVMC. Um, that said, and admittedly, we don't always get into the nitty gritty of how racism and racist behavior specifically permeate the profession. But the reality is that it does, and it does so in a number of ways. So Adelia's research has been really kind of probing this topic, and she is joining me today to discuss some of her findings and what they might mean for my work and certainly our collective work within the profession. So with that, Dr. James, Adelia, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So, as is our custom on diversity and inclusion on air, I asked my guests to tell us a bit about themselves. So, with that, Zilia. Hi. So, as you mentioned, I'm currently an assistant professor of sociology at Endicott College in Beverly, Massachusetts. I'm starting my third year here at this school. I graduated with my PhD in sociology from the University of Chicago in 2017. Before that, uh, I was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I got my master's degree there. And then I started my higher education career at Wellesley College in Massachusetts and graduated there with a bachelor's in sociology in 2007. So that's a bit about me. Awesome. Great. So how did you get into this? (laughs) (laughs) How did you end up, because I was looking a bit at your profile on the Endicott College website, which we will certainly include in the show notes so folks can kind of see you and for folks that are listening to the podcast instead of watching, um, can see you and kind of read a little bit more about um, the other kinds of research that you're doing. But um, how did you find yourself studying diversity in veterinary medicine? Yeah, so about two years ago, I was finishing up my dissertation. For that, I was really interested. I knew I wanted to look at work and occupation. So specifically, I was interested in the gender pay gap in professions. And I was curious as to whether client bias factored into gender pay gaps in the profession. Spent so many years working on that. I was done. I needed a new project, especially, you know, I was transitioning to a new school. And so I decided to download a bunch of demographic charts from the U.S. 
Bureau of Labor Statistics website, just like desperately looking for sort of a new research topic. So I was scanning dozens of charts, trying to look at were there really any interesting patterns by race, by gender, by education. And when I got to the veterinary medicine data, specifically charts looking at race and gender uh, demographics, I was really surprised to see that veterinary medicine was over 90% white. And I thought to myself, no way today is there a profession that's over 90% white. I actually thought it was a mistake. So I went back to sort of past years, like the past 10 years, and saw that it was consistently over 90% white. I had come into this project knowing that veterinary medicine, a lot like a lot, a lot of other U.S. healthcare professions, was feminizing, uh, and that veterinary medicine had really sort of feminized very rapidly. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea that there was a sort of continuity in the racial ethnic demographics of the profession. So I thought that was something really interesting and curious to me that you had this extreme demographic shift, but virtually no change in racial ethnic representation. So, wow. that's So is that a sociology thing where you just kind of say, I'm going to go look at some data and find a new project? Yeah, it's so funny. When I was in grad school, my advisor said that years ago, um, the Bureau of Labor, Labor Statistics and the Census Bureau would actually publish these like little pamphlets that are like, here are the most interesting charts we found, you know, from recent census data. And he said, sociologists lived off of that. Like We got that in the mail and it was like, you know, your birthday. But now we, you know, everything's online. And so I had just recalled that, um, how he found a lot of his projects just doing that. And so, yeah. So tell me a little bit about how the particular, what's the name of your study that you, that we're going to be talking about today and kind of how clearly you went down a rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This particular study and just in the interest of full disclosure. So before, as you were kind of starting this, I think that we talked pretty randomly like a couple of years ago and was like, oh yeah, yeah, (laughs) this is a topic. Please study this. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing we do. Once we get our hand on data, we can't believe it as sociologists. We then start just going out, just asking people, like, what's going on? Is this really going on? Where else should I look next? And you were really helpful for helping me think about sort of who I should get data from or how I should collect that data. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Tell us about this particular study. Yeah, so in all honesty, this study goes by many names, (laughs) (laughs) diversity in veterinary medicine or explaining racial homogeneity Um, in a healthcare profession is often um, a title that I that I use. Um, And in this study, I'm collecting um, interview data. So, so far I've interviewed a total of 38 veterinary college students, as well as employed veterinarians. I've done about half of them in person. So I actually went to like AVMA conventions where I went to people's workplaces and interviewed them there. But I've also done some video and some phone interviews. So, you know, I'm getting people from all over the country, which 
has been really interesting. And I chose to collect interview data for sort of two main reasons. And the first one is I'm really new to this field. I know nothing about it. And so I really wanted the opportunity to get a lay of the land, you know, norms, values, you know, the dynamics of relationships. And I wanted to be able to ask a ton of follow-up questions and to get clarity from people. So, you know, in-depth interviews are really good for that. And I also wanted to get a sense of people's sort of individual lives and their feelings about how they got into the career, how their career was going for them, how they felt about the underrepresentation of people of color in the profession. So, you know, doing in-depth interviews meant I could sit with somebody for an hour to even up to three hours, just covering everything from their childhood, where a lot of people said, like, as young as five, I was thinking about becoming a vet through sort of walking me through where they are today, either as students or as employed veterinarians. Mm -hmm. So what was your central central question? Mm -hmm. So my central question, I was interested in looking at the, what kind of racial frames did individuals use to make sense of the dominance of white individuals in veterinary medicine? And a related question, how did these particular racial frames that they adopt help them sort of shape their behavior. And if they shape their behavior in ways that led them to exclude people of color. And so I use the term racial frame and it's actually, it sounds a lot how you would imagine. A frame in general, when we talk about a frame in sociology, is kind of the lens that someone uses to understand or interpret the world around them. And so to talk about racial frames is to think about the ways in which people interpret race and race relations around them. In particular, I'm, I'm borrowing from the work of a sociologist um, named Eduardo Bonilla Silva. He was recently um, president of the American Sociological Association. And he argues in a number of books and articles that sort of the most popular or dominant racial frame that many Americans use to understand race around them are colorblind frames. You might have heard about, you know, colorblind ideology or way of thinking. And simply the logic behind colorblind ideology is if I don't see race, then there's no way that I can engage in racist behaviors. Another sort of racial frame that some people use is a color consciousness uh, counter frame. So those are people who argue that you can't just not see race, you can't ignore race, and that in the U.S. uh, there is systematic racism in the form of institutionalized racism, but also uh, racial discrimination and interpersonal interactions. All right. Uh, we might have to come back to this colorblind thing because I know that that's, a, that's a hot topic for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A bit of time talking about. But so so you've done these interviews, so about, you said, 38 so far mm-hmm. the recording. Um, so are you still collecting data? I would like to. I've taken a bit of a break. Really wanted to take time to really analyze this data. I do feel like I'm hitting what sociologists call the point of saturation. And that's when each additional interview is not really adding more information. And so I'm pretty close to hitting that. Um, As always, I'm always looking for more people of color. My sample is about half white, half people of color, but I would always love more stories. Right. Now for folks that certainly within this profession, we see a lot more quantitative research. So um, I just want to kind of give folks a little bit of a primer because really kind of the, the, the framework is 
qualitative research um, until you've kind of referenced, okay, so you're doing interviews, you have these points of saturation, those kinds of things. So can you give like a one minute, like, yeah. <laughs> and someone who also does qualitative research, um, Quan and Qual, like really kind of, it's probably a little new for some folks. So tell us a little bit about what that methodology is. Yeah, I always break it down for my students is simply quantitative data is you're collecting numerical data or data that you can turn into numbers. So a lot of survey, you're able to code zero and ones for answers. And but qualitative is anything that's non-numerical data. So for me, that's I'm using interview data. Some people might use images, some people conduct observations, so ethnographies, things like that. Um, and as that I was saying, you know, I chose to use qualitative data because this is an area that was really new to me. To use quant, you know, to conduct a survey, I would have, I would have had to have sort of intimate knowledge of the profession and know what kind of questions I wanted to ask, sort of have a sense of what I think were sort of the reasons why there was an underrepresentation of people of color in the profession. I really had no knowledge, <laughs> so starting fresh. And the nice thing about interviews is that I can ask follow-up questions and to probe people a little bit. Also, I was hoping that by conducting interviews, I'm covering a pretty sensitive topic. The discussion of race and racism is quite sensitive. And so I felt like I wanted to make people feel comfortable sitting with me, establishing a rapport to talk freely and comfortably about their racial experiences. Okay, great. Thanks so much for, for kind of giving a little bit of an overview. So let's get to the meat of it. Let's get to the juicy part. <laughs> yeah. What have you found out? <laughs> yeah. And I'll take my time breaking this yeah. down. You can ask me follow-up questions. So I felt like there were sort of two different narratives or, you know, main frames I was seeing in my, in my data. So most of the white respondents um, adopted the dominant colorblind frames, as I was talking about before. And by that, I mean, they minimize the possibility of racism as an explanation for the underrepresentation of people of color in the profession. Now, people didn't say like, oh, I want to be clear, it's not racism. Instead, what they tend to do is say, well, you know, most people of color or people of colors, kind of suggesting all, are poor or working class. And so they would say, because of that, they can't afford pets. And if you can't afford pets, how would you ever know anything about veterinary medicine? Or they would say, you know, I recognize there are some people of color who own pets, but they don't take them to the vet because they don't really value their pets in that way. And so again, there's this sense of a devaluation um, of veterinary medicine among people of color due to their, you know, socioeconomic class. And then finally, there were some people who said, well, I recognize there are some people of color who have pets, who took their pets to the vet, who value veterinary medicine. But when they look at that debt-to-income ratio, they decide they don't want to go into it. Because they grew up poor or working class, they don't want to enter a profession where they're going to be making so little money. They want to go into a profession that has a lot of prestige and makes a lot of money. So what was really curious about that group who adopted that frame is that they refused to mentor people of color. So there were a couple of people who actually had youth of color come to them and say, I want a job shadow. 
And they say, oh, no, you don't want to be in this profession. Or they would say there's nothing that schools or professional organizations can do to recruit people of color because they don't want to be here. They don't want to be the only ones. They don't want this sort of low income on the other end of that school. So then on the flip side, I had nearly all, pretty much all the veterinarians of color. Curiously enough, they kind of agreed with this class explanation. They said, granted, yes, there are many communities of color where there are poor working class, and that might factor into them not going into the profession in large numbers. But they said, we can't ignore the fact that there is systematic racism in the profession. So You know, there were people of color who themselves had experienced microaggressions in the classroom or in organizations where they had seen the ways in which organizations would say that they value diversity. But when it came to hiring, the shortlist was always like white men. And so they were saying, you know, we're also not a very inclusive profession. Those people who adopted what I'm thinking of as the color consciousness counterframe, they were really motivated to start like diversity organizations at their colleges or their workplaces or in professional organizations. They were really involved in recruiting and mentoring youth of color, along with a number of white allies that I actually spoke to. There were you know, a small group of white veterinarians and college students that I spoke to who adhered to this color consciousness counterframe and said, yes, racism is a problem. And I've been working with uh, students of color or colleagues of color to address this. But I found, unfortunately, in the cases where they faced microaggressions, like kind of racism and interpersonal interactions, that's when they kind of tended to stay quiet. And that was really for self-preservation. Either they were just tired of constantly facing microaggression after microaggression, and it just would be tiring to always address it. Or they were scared that it might hinder their career. So, you know, people said, I had a professor who said something anti-Semitic, but I needed to pass this class. So I didn't say anything. So, yeah. So you've got these two kind of big paradigms, um, the colorblind, well, you've got more than two, colorblindness, class, um, and, you know, this is what you've described, particularly with your white research subjects is something I think that I know I bump up against quite a bit. And, and a couple of things I think I really want to highlight, particularly around colorblind ideology, when you kind of accept that ideology of like, I don't see color, I don't even see you as a black woman, right? And I'm always like, oh, is that supposed to be, is that a compliment? Like, I'm, I'm obviously... <laughs> But it also prevents people from developing a language around kind of how to talk about race. Forget about just racism for a minute, but just race, <laughs> right? In polite conversation, it, this um, refusal, this like, I don't, I don't see it, so it doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist as a thing, race by itself, then clearly racism and racist behavior also can't exist. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it was just really funny. I would ask everyone, white or a person of color, how has your race or your ethnicity shaped your life experiences or experience in veterinary medicine? And without fail, I would have white respondents say, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know. I've never thought about that. (laughs) And then with people of color, 
oh yes, I can tell you there are so many ways, right? And so for them, race is very salient. It is because they they get it in, in everyday interactions with white individuals in the profession and outside of it. And so I think it feels really comforting for people to say that they're colorblind. And again, I don't think I mentioned before, this is not only something that is largely in the white community, but we also see it in some communities of color as well. Especially because it's this feeling of like, if I can ignore this, maybe I can overcome racism. Yeah, Yeah, in a similar manner. So, yeah, it was just racist behavior, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm above it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just in everyday interactions, you're that sort of that myth is dispelled because you see it, you know, people acting on race in subconscious ways. Right. Right. I think of the other piece and, and the other kind of explanations that, that you talk about or something else I know that I and I mean, I just came from a meeting recently where where, you know, this idea of, well, you know, people of color don't own pets. And if they do, they don't bring them because they don't value our services in the same way as either white people or, and or more affluent people. And and I think that I, I know I, for, as someone who's worked in the profession for, you know, 20 years, I want to dispel that. I want to be very, very frank here. We own pets and I'm going to include myself. We own pets. We actually tend to own quite a few pets. The relationship that we have with our pets, we, we experience the human animal bond. We love our animals. There may certainly for a, um, a number of us have the issues around socioeconomic status that create barriers to access, but other barriers might be transportation, location, just general accessibility issues, prioritization. Um, I was telling some folks recently, I mean, I had a, a ton of little prayers <laughs> when I was coming up, but my parents also had three kids that they were raising. And while there were certain, I guess, social luxuries that we were able to afford, the reality is in terms of healthcare for us and our animals, like some tough decisions had to be made. And often those tough decisions involve Robitussin, the store brand Tussin, <laughs> and baby aspirin. Like that's, that's, that's our reality. And yet we had a very, very close bond with our animals and the type of relationship that we have now with our animals with more resources certainly has included veterinary medicine. But again, it's still a different relationship. But what's also interesting about that, Adelia, is that there is this notion of, well, they have these issues. And then there's kind of this paternalistic frame that kind of gets put on it. So they have these issues, their relationship is different and they're poor. So we're going to protect them (laughs) from going into a profession that has a high debt to income ratio. There's just, for me, problematic all over, all around. It It was really tough to hear that. You can't make a career decision for anyone but especially not on race or ethnicity. It made me sort of think about the ways in which we see, I I don't know, I kind of related it back to like black celebrities, right? This, there's often this discussion of like rags to riches story that takes on a different element when we look at black celebrities. And I was wondering if it was some of that that was reinforcing this idea that someone who grows up in poverty, if that's the assumption where you're starting with, is going to want an excessive amount of money and wants fame and, and, and prestige that come with other professions just to me felt very problematic. Yeah. I think that the other thing that, that folks need to understand and what I found in my data is that for students of color in veterinary school, 
their family profile is not dramatically different than those of their white peers, right? And so typically what I'm seeing in the data that I collect here at AADMC is that a lot of, and the majority, probably two thirds of our students of color are not first generation and not low socioeconomic status. They have a parent who not only finished undergrad, but actually has at least one parent that has a graduate degree. So, yeah. <laughs> it makes sense given the policy. Right? Yeah, given what, all the things you need to get into vet school, that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> so I talked to people who had been doing after school volunteering, taking on extra classes um, since high school. So of course you're going to get sort of this higher income group or people who have knowledge of what it takes to pursue a postgraduate career. Right. So we have that population, but in terms of our ability to kind of recruit and stretch and, and really kind of go beyond our middle class kind of affluent populations of color that are coming into the profession, you know, I think that it, it really, your research is, is also kind of telling us, look, look beyond that. And again, don't hinder people, don't create a barrier (laughs) because you don't want to hurt them by making them more broke, right? Don't do that. (laughs) It's really kind of an attack on agency. And I mean, it is a well-meaning, well-intentional one. But again, the impact, impact over intention, the impact really can be quite devastating. Yeah. And what I want to emphasize is it was like the opposite of malicious. I mean, these people really were passionate and were really concerned. And so, yeah, that was, you know, dealing with that in an interview was a, was a delicate process. But yeah. Um, and I could totally understand it. So if you're coming from this assumption that they are all poor, very working class, and they're coming from these difficult conditions, it was easy for me to then understand why they would behave the ways in which they did. But of course, as you said, that's limiting people's agency. Um, So, for those of us working in the trenches, (laughs) what does this tell us? Um, And we kind of talk a little bit about the opportunities and barriers, but really, for me, my job is really kind of looking at ways of, of helping people advance diversity in the profession. And in this case, we're talking a bit about representative structural diversity, right? So people as one aspect can have you back on the show to talk about like, okay, now once we get the numbers up, like how do we all behave ourselves and treat each other? Yeah, yeah. So, well, because microaggressive behavior is exhausting, but, you know, tell us, what do you think we should do? Yeah, so I think the first thing is now it being clear and reinforced. I don't think this is, my findings are necessarily groundbreaking. I definitely, people of color in the profession know this, and I feel like there have been blog posts about this and things like that. So I'm just bringing new data to sort of support that. And to me, it sort of reinforces the idea that conversations we should be having or you should be having in the profession about this are not happening. And that could be because people don't have the language to talk about it. So going back to the colorblind racism that you talked about, if you insist you don't see race and you're never going to develop the language to talk about race. And so that requires just going back to basics, right? (laughs) Being able to teach and that 
uh, schools, employers taking time out to talk about basic terms around race, basic sort of common courtesies around race and how you interact with people of different racial backgrounds, your colleagues as well as clients. And then from there, it means starting to dispel really specific myths. I think that's a really good place to start because like I said, these people had the best intentions and they felt like what they believe to be very true. Um, and so once you're able to present data to say like, no, not all you know, people of color who come into this profession are poor and things like that, then you can start to have a dialogue from, okay, where do we go from here? Yeah, so hashtag not all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all students matter, right? <laughs> like, uh, so how do you, I mean, I'm going to be really, really blunt and for being increasingly blunt as I, what can white people do in, in veterinary medicine to really kind of, I mean, you know, they're going to listen or watch this podcast. They're going to hear about this data. At some point you're going to publish it and I'm going to like, you know, staple it to a bunch of people's foreheads. So, like, what can white people do to really kind of address this? Yeah. Because I don't, and I want to be clear, it's not, the, for the people of color, there, there's already a, enough kind of burden there. And also because the profession is 90% white, this is, this is frankly not, our, and I'll be, by our, I mean people of color, this is not our issue. Yeah, yeah. And that goes perfectly into what I've been thinking as I'm thinking, okay, like, where do we go from here? Kind of what was like another sort of subset finding is that white veterinarians who adopted this colorblind frame insisted that they couldn't be mentors. They believed that youth of color would only want to go into the profession if they had a mentor of color. But you know, the numbers the odds are very slim <laughs> that they're going to find a mentor of color. And I think there's a need to talk about and to sort of advertise that cross-cultural or cross-race um, mentoring relationships work and they are successful and that you could be a role model as a white veterinarian to a person of color. So when I interviewed students and veterinarians of color, I assumed that they all had a vet of color mentor or some, you know, a role like a clear role model who they had a relationship. That was not the case for most people. You're like, oh, I saw that of color on TV once. And that was the first time I really thought it was something I could do. Or there was a bed of color in my neighborhood neighborhood who had a practice for two years that I remember when I was five. And then when I was thinking about careers in undergrad, I thought, oh, maybe I could do that. And that's to say that just like the white vets, the vets of color, they started out with mentoring from white vets who said, come to my practice, volunteer or work after school and in the summer. And these white vets mentored these people of color as they moved through applying for vet school and finding internships and things like that. And so I think I really just wanted to be made clear that if you're a white veterinarian, you can mentor a, a person of color. And especially if that person of color comes to you, don't say, oh, I'm not good enough to do that. <laughs> like, 
just the way the numbers are, you might be the only one who's offering an invitation into the profession. It also sends the signal too that diversity is not just an issue that needs to be addressed by people of color in the profession. So a lot of sets of color I talked to who did diversity initiatives in college were saying that when they first started it, it just, it was like an us versus them. They wanted, they were trying to get like white colleagues to like join them. And people would say, oh, that's something for you to address. Like we hope you're successful, but there's nothing we can do to like really help you with that because we don't know anything. And so, you know, that's of color I talked to said, you know, white allies really send the message that this is diversity is important for the entire profession, not just the vets of color. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's important for folks to understand, too, that almost in any movement, it's the allies that really, frankly, do a lot of the heavy lift because those are the folks that kind of, they're the champions. They're the ones that kind of also... I hate saying it, but kind of legitimize the the movement, right? Saying, no, no, we recognize that there's an issue here. So let's kind of stretch and and do that. With respect to the mentoring piece, I think it's, it's always interesting because I hear that a lot. The role of role models is really important. And absolutely same race, same gender, all of those kinds of things are, are really important in role modeling, but they serve different functions, right? And so I think that that's important. But for those of us in any profession that we're, we're, um, there's a population of underrepresented peoples, and for this purpose of this conversation, people of color, I mean, how do people think that we all ended up here? Like, yeah. if there's not enough my grandmother would say like, oh, well, you weren't actually, you know, laid by the, the turkey buzzard in the head by the sun. Like, we didn't just birth ourselves like a Greek goddess and goddess, right? A god or goddess, right? Um, there were still people that helped us and they were more likely to be people that didn't share our race. And a lot of times for, for women early in the profession didn't share our sex or gender either. And so, you know, and yet we persisted. Yeah, yeah. And that's just to say, as much as we're laughing, I thought the same thing going into these interviews. I'm like, wow, I'm going to get these really, you know, amazing stories of how they found their mentor of color. And that's going to explain it all, you know, in some ways, or be a really interesting story to tell. But it, no, it's not. And when you think about it, yeah, that can't possibly be the case. There's just, they're just not enough. There's not enough numbers. Yeah. So at some point, like, okay, there might have been 10 people. Like, did you really expect them to then spend the next 20 years over there? I mean, it, it, like, we can't expect that. Like, folks got to pitch in. <laughs> right? So where do you see this going? So you hit, you just about hit that point of saturation. And uh, so what's next? Yeah, so I'm working on writing up manuscripts for sociology journals, but also vet med journals. So when I designed the study, I knew that's where I wanted to send my research. And with the manuscripts for vet med, I want to also be able to bring in sort of lessons we're learning from diversity organizing and other you know work organizations, some basic like do's and don'ts or like things that make it sort of hurdles that there have been in trying to improve diversity and inclusion, which is the other key component in organizations. So I'm really looking forward to writing that over this year. 
I'm also toying with the idea a little bit, we'll see, of looking at other like case studies of healthcare professions that look a lot like vet med and that they have feminized over the years and also remained over 90% white. There's a handful of others. There's occupational therapists, speech language pathologists, physician assistants. And I'm wondering if um, taking some time to study those and sort of do a comparative analysis, just having that much more data to think about how, you know, interactions within organizations, but also sort of institutional policies lead to this sort of constant Mm-hmm. underrepresentation of people of color. Awesome. Great. So just a couple more questions yeah, yeah. Uh, for you. How can we attract more sociologists to study us? Yeah. <laughs> like, who do I have to mail those like BLS bulletins to? <laughs> We'd love to. Um, we get so excited when people like think that we have something to contribute <laughs> to discussion of diversity and inclusion. I, don't th- I think we often forget about sociologists. I would start with the American Sociological Association, and I can send this email address to you after, but it's just simply asanet.org. And much like ABMA, there are like subsections that have particular specialties. And the ones that come into mind in particular ASA sections are animals and society. So they look at, you know, pet human relationships, for example, but there's also some people in that section who have done ethnographies of vet clinics, who have interviewed women veterinarians, for instance. There's another subsection, racial and ethnic minority section, for those who are interested in bringing sociologists to vet colleges to evaluate what's going on and to offer advice. Uh, There's the sociology of education section. And when you go to the website, you can click to see the leadership for each of those sections and email them. And they'll put a call out to their members to say, hey, who wants to conduct either academic research on this or actually consult? There are sociologists who do what we call practical sociology, (laughs) who take this theory, you know, uh, and bring it down (laughs) and use it to analyze what's going on in organizations and actually give people actionable steps. Awesome. Awesome. And then my last question is for folks who have been struck by this podcast, (laughs) like, yo, I really was down with the colorblind ideology and maybe I need to do some personal work or read some stuff. (laughs) Where might someone like you say, here's a good place to start? Yeah. So I mentioned before Eduardo Bonilla-Silva has published on colorblind racism. Of course, the title of his book is escaping me now. (laughs) But if you put in uh, his name and colorblind racism, he actually has a book that he sort of has updated constantly. So for instance, he talks about the paradox of us in one of his recent editions of us electing Barack Obama, but still holding on to this colorblind racial ideology. Mm -hmm. Um, You in the beginning were talking about white fragility. And yeah, that is a book that is being talked a lot about in sociology. And so I would say um, those are two prominent books. And from there, go to the index. They've got like a lot of good people that they are speaking to who are saying similar things. Yeah. So one of Benny's books, I think, is Racism Without Racists. Yes. Yes. Racism Without Racists, Colorblind Racism, and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in the United States. 
Yeah. I think that's a good place to start because what I like about that is he gives the history of racial, the development of colorblind racism. Mm -hmm. And what I like about giving people history is to remind you, I guess, not to feel bad like about having adopted that. I think at all, I mean, I, I would admit, I feel like there was a time in my life where I was like, yeah, that, that works, you know? And I think it's when you see the reason why it developed in the U.S., mm-hmm. you start to really think about why it doesn't work yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you make a great point. And in fairness, if, if, you know, our listeners or viewers or, or folks that are like kind of um, hanging out in that frame, I totally get it. I, I would love to hang out. <laughs> yeah. I have to think about this all the time. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a luxury and, a, and frankly a privilege that as, is associated with the, the choice to say, yeah, I'm just gonna ignore that and I'm not gonna see it and so it's not my thing and it's so I get it and so it's not you know we're not indicting anyone here but it but it's not real yeah yeah and I think that that gives you a really good explanation of why it's not real and like I said he up Dates the text constantly, bringing in um, contemporary examples. Um, that's really great. Great. So I will make sure that we include a reference to Bonilla Silver's work in the show notes so that folks can know how to find that, as well as the newer book, White Fragility, which is really, I think that even in a few years, we're going to kind of see that as a seminal text in terms of kind of how folks really think about this and what it means to be fragile with a racial frame and kind of how people push back on that. And so it's a really interesting text. And I certainly also, um, I'm just about, I'm expecting to finish it later today. So I'm expecting people to, I definitely will recommend um, that as some follow-up reading to the show as well. Awesome. So with that, uh, Adila, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule up there. <laughs> all right, well, thank you for inviting me. That's where it all started. So, so thank you. <laughs> so this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. You can find this podcast certainly on YouTube video version, but you can also find it on just about any podcast app. So that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You can say Alexa <laughs> play that podcast for me we're, we're just about everywhere um, we want to be and you can also find additional content about DNI and the veterinary profession on our Facebook page which is AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast be sure to like and subscribe um, like the page, subscribe to the podcast give us um, those five star reviews so that you and your colleagues can find more information about the work that we're doing here at AABMC and so with that, I will, again, thank my guest, uh, Dr. Adelia James, for joining us today. And we will catch you next time.